Hey everyone, it's Erica. I've prepared something special for you. I wanna invite you to my one-of-a-kind five-day challenge where I'll be sharing how you, along with thousands of others, can start investing with confidence. You're probably thinking, Erica, I've never invested into the stock market, or I don't have a ton of money lying around. But that's exactly why I created this challenge for you. It doesn't matter if you have lots of money to start with or next to nothing. You'll discover easy and fun ways to start generating passive income, multiply your money, and create a future of financial independence without the guesswork, complexity, or risk when it comes to investing. The challenge is right around the corner, so secure your spot by clicking the link in the show notes. And by the way, this challenge is totally free. So click the link in the show notes or go to erica.com slash invest. That's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest. Again, that's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest to secure your spot. Now back to the episode. Men, what men get wrong when it comes to investing is they tend to fall in love with stocks. They hold them for too long. They tend to freak out during tough markets more than women do. For women, our mistake is we don't do it soon enough and we don't do it often enough and we don't do enough of it. Once we do it, we're really good at it because we leave it. Financial planning doesn't have to be really, really hard. And so we get this garbage that goes in your head. You don't have to know how. What you need to do is you need to commit to yourself that you will do it and make a habit of it. Some of the questions we've gone through, why don't women invest? If we could change the conversation around money for women and have us throw those messages out our ears from our brain, I think we'd make real headway. Today, I'm interviewing Sally Krawcheck, who's the co-founder of a fintech company called Elevest. In this episode, we're talking about how to get started with investing, financial blocks that you may have, and more. I'm Erica Kohlberg. This is Erica Taught Me. And today, we're here with Sally Krawcheck. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So I want to start with this question. What do you think people get wrong when it comes to investing? Depends on who those people are. Men, what men get wrong when it comes to investing is they tend to fall in love with stocks. They hold them for too long. They tend to freak out during tough markets more than women do. Uh, They tend to look at their investment accounts too often and so therefore can feel compelled to do something and will do something. And because the stock market is so efficient and so much information is incorporated to it, 
and so many people who trade stocks do it for decades as their full-time living and people think, oh, I can outperform, let me trade this, that they therefore underperform and earn less than they would if they just put it in a diversified investment portfolio and just chose an asset allocation and stayed the course. The mistake women make is they don't invest enough. We've been socialized as women. Ah, I've got to understand it. I've got to understand the whole thing. The, you know, the company just asked me what my risk tolerance is. I don't really quite know. Rather than take an educated guess, I'm going to go learn something and come back. And then people are busy. Other things get in the way. There is no clock on the wall that ticks away the money you're losing every day by not investing and not getting the compounding of the returns. And so for women, our mistake is we don't do it soon enough and we don't do it often enough and we don't do enough of it. Once we do it, we're really good at it because we leave it. I remember you giving this example of someone, if they lost $100 out of uh, their wallet, <laughs> they would notice, right? right Can right. you talk about that? So we did a calculation. Um, what someone could lose in stock market gains um, and the compounding of those gains over time every day by not investing. And I can't remember what the, you know, if someone's making 85,000 bucks a year and putting in X percent, et cetera, the same percent that men, men put in, what that could be. And in the first year and the second year, it's not that much. But as you're missing out again on the compounding, earning returns on the returns on the returns, you can be losing $50, $100, $150 a day. And what we'd like to say is, if that amount of money fell out of your purse, when you walked out of here on a, where are we, like a Tuesday, you would, you know, would you go fix the hole in your purse that it fell out of? Yes. Well, it happened, to <laughs> but what if it happened a second day? By the third day, when you lost $300, that purse would be fixed. And yet, we don't take the 15 minutes it literally takes at, say, an Elevest to set up an account and to begin investing. And, and I also say that 15 minutes is easily the highest return, 15 minutes, that any of us have maybe in a, in a lifetime. I guess, though, historically, there have been a lot of gatekeepers in the industry making it hard and seemingly inaccessible for people to get access to the stock market. Right, right. And we've seen that particularly for women because at Elevest, we've done deep research, thousands of hours of research with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of, of women at this stage. And what we see in addition to the, oh, I should call up UBS or Morgan Stanley and how do I find somebody and where do I find them, et cetera, there are even further sort of barriers that are in front of us. What we find is that the industry doesn't reflect us, that it, financial advisors, if that makes sense for us, are mostly male and mostly in their 60s. And so we end up like, oh my gosh, there's my dad. Love my dad. I'll talk to my dad. Maybe not as relatable for, say, a young woman. Even when you go over to some of the online trading places or investing firms that have been there, they've talked in a different language than women do. They've talked in basis points and trading and, you know, this kind of account and so on. We women tend to think in terms of goals. Well, but how do I get to the house I want to buy or the apartment I want to buy? How do I get the hell out of this job I hate and get to the startup that I want to start? And so we tend to think in terms of goals-based, and then we're presented with, would you like a large cap value mutual fund? You're like, I don't know, I want to buy a house. And so it's almost a Mars and Venus thing, not in the traditional way people think women are risk averse. That is not the case, but that we tend to think about it more conceptually and more goals-based. 
What in your research that you've done with Elevest has stood out to you as something that you did not expect? Oh my gosh, every day, every day. So when we first started, now remember, I spent my career on Wall Street, more years than I care to count at the big Wall Street firms. And so when we started Elevest, I sort of thought I knew, oh, I've, I've been in the industry for forever and I'm a woman, got this. And I thought women, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but we spent real money on it. Women need to work through sort of our emotional blockages around money. And so we actually put together a prototype of a whole journey for women to really face the issues that they have around money, the fears that they have around money, the misperceptions. And we sort of built this journey. And the women ah, did that. By the way, for those of you who are listening, I have put up my middle finger. <laughs> and they said, yeah, I've got issues around money. I don't want to solve them with you. Like, you're, you're an app. You know what? I want to buy a house. I want to start a business. I want to have a baby. You just tell me how I can get to those things and, and tell me in a way that is jargon-free. Not that I'm not as smart or smart in financial education. I just don't want to go through the jargon. Mm-hmm. And tell me if I'm on track. Tell me if the markets go down, what I need to do if I fall off track to get back on track. You know, sort of, you know, through the app, hold my hand a bit and get me from point A to point B. And by the way, because we're women, so we're like, it's it's and not or. By the way, I want to invest for impact as well. I want my money to go to things that I feel aligned with and I feel good about as as an option. That's what I want. You know, I don't want you to, I'll I'll deal with the issues over here on this other, at this other place. (laughs) That's funny. I've spoken to a lot of people in my audience and I think there are a few things that, few reasons they give for why they're not going to start investing. One is, I don't know how. Mm-hmm. And especially, let's say, the financial advisors in the world make it seem very oh, complicated, so complicated, right? Right, right. What yeah. do you say to that? Yeah. Um, what I say to that is you don't have to know how. What you need to do is you need to commit to yourself that you will do it and make a habit of it. And what I mean by that is invest some percent out of every paycheck. That's very helpful because the markets have been upward trending for as long as we can go back in time, but they're upward trending with volatility and that volatility can be scary. And so if you commit to yourself, I'm gonna invest 1%, 5, 10%, whatever it is, out of every paycheck, then sometimes I'm gonna be, when the market is tough, And I know I'm, you know, intellectually, I know later I'm going to be getting a good deal because the market's on sale, but it's a habit. It comes out. It's a recurring deposit. Um, And so sometimes I'm buying high, sometimes I'm buying low. Typically, I'll get the market return, which doesn't seem exciting, but does better than 99% plus of active traders. Remember, we talked about actively trading, betting against a very efficient market against people who do it full time. It's, it's very difficult to win all the time. So actually a market return counterintuitively is outperforming. So you commit to do it and then you find a place that you trust to do it for you. And what I would say is as with an LFS, you want to ask the question, are you a fiduciary? Some are, some aren't. Are you putting your interest, my interest ahead of your own company that I'm looking at? do you construct for me a diversified investment portfolio? Mm -hmm. You know, when I tell you what I want to achieve, 
do you then go behind the scenes and put together a broad range of, say, ETFs that make up a portfolio that's right for my risk tolerance, for what I want to achieve? Are your costs low? What are they? Are there hidden costs to it? You know, are those, are, do those fees make sense for me? Do you rebalance it over time? Because the asset allocation, the things you're invested in today, makes sense when I'm 31 or 23, but maybe not so much when I'm 50, right? And so are you making those changes for me? I would go further, you know, if you're ready for a little extra homework. Does this company reflect the world I'm living in? Or, you know, do they reflect me, mm -hmm. right? Are these people that I want to be supporting in their journey or do I want to, which is totally fine, support traditional Wall Street, you know, with it is, is something else to ask. And what about those people who want to do it on their own? Let's say they want to pick their own ETFs. They don't yeah. want to have it done for them. Yeah. God bless. <laughs> <laughs> would you have a formula you would give them? Look, I, I would keep it simple. Again, if you're trying to pick stocks or pick ETFs, and you're approaching it as a, I want to have fun, I want to trade. I think this ETF over the next six months is going to really explode because I really believe in the potential of small cap stocks in Asia, you know, and this ETF does it. If that is what you want to do and entertain yourself in your free time, go for it. If what you want to do is get yourself invested, put yourself in a position to earn the returns, you know, get the confidence that comes from seeing those returns accrue over time is no guarantee they will in the future, but as they have historically, then you want to get a sort of a broad-based index fund that, it, you know, is either global in scope or U.S. in scope. You want to go as broad as possible, put your money in there, you know, and stop thinking about it. Another big obstacle that I hear people say they have to investing is I'm scared. Sure. Sure. They've seen people lose money or they've seen their parents, yeah. you know. I know, I know. And it, you know, pain of loss hurts so much more than the joy of the gain. How, and, but at the same time, there's no return without any risk. That is true in life, in your life choices. And that is true when it comes to investing as well. And so in return for that volatility, that you've seen in the stock market, say we, we won't hit with Bitcoin or crypto right now, but in return, you have historically had about nine and a half percent annual returns since the 1920s. And that includes the Great Depression, the Great Crash of 1987, the internet bubble burst, the subprime crisis, you know, a pandemic, a pandemic back, we'll take it through the 1920s, you know, but you had the pandemic back in the 19-teens. World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, you know, the war. I mean, you look at stagflation, inflation. I mean, look at all the stuff that's happened since then. And the market has had volatility, but has been upward trending because essentially it's an underlying bet on the economy. And it's hard to bet against certainly the American people over any reasonable period of time. Now, how do you sort of take care of your risk? You don't want to be investing in the stock market if you're going to need the money in six months. Mm -hmm. If you are, your nest egg is there and you're thinking about retiring soon. That's where I mentioned before asset allocation, a place like an Elevest will start you out with a big equity allocation because you've got the time 
to ride through those ups and downs. You've got the time to recover. Whereas if it's your parents and they're looking at retirement, we'd have them more in a fixed income portfolio where the risk traditionally has not been as great so that a stock market crash, for example, would not completely derail their investing. So investing in the stock market and crypto is not for everybody, but if you've got time to work on your side, then ride through it. And the, my best advice is what I did in this latest downturn, just don't look. There is, you know, just keep on trucking, keep making your recurring deposits and don't look. Now, what I also want to talk about is the power of compounding. Mm-hmm. Because that nine and a half percent annual return, great. Well, let's go back a step because you, you earn that, which in simple math is terrific. But you're earning those returns on returns, right? So you invest, you know, $100 in the market, you know, you earn up, say, 10% return. The next return you earn is not just on the first 100, but on the 110. And then the next is on the 120. And so, you know, the secret to Warren Buffett is a pretty simple one, which he just stayed the course and allowed his returns to compound returns on returns. So if you had started investing, put in $1,000 in 1900, which is a lot of money in 1900, and just let it go and the market compounded on itself, you know, come today, you would have had something like $57 million. <laughs> That's, you, you know, you can take a little stomach flutter from, ah, the market's down and I'm feeling crazy and I'm not gonna look. Let me re-say this. Oh, the market's down and I'm feeling sick and I'm not going to look. You can take a little bit of that to get those kind of returns. Yeah. The next, and, you know, I'm taking you through all of these questions I get because these are real questions that people give me all the time as obstacles. So the next one I get is, I don't have enough money to invest. I know, I know. And you might not. So you don't have enough money if you've got credit card debt outstanding. That stuff sucks away at your wealth. And in fact, We've talked about the positive of compounding for, you know, investing in the markets and allowing the returns on the returns. There's the negative, which is credit card debt, where we've all got a story. I've got mine from when I was younger of, yo, look, this I can afford this because I'm just going to pay the minimum. And that's going to be amazing. So I can actually literally afford this dress that I actually cannot afford, right? And then you end up over time that $100 dress costs you $150, $200. So just as investing can build wealth, debt can suck wealth away. So if you have credit card debt, maybe auto loan debt that's high interest rate, anything above sort of 7% interest rate, you want to get that stuff paid off. You want to prioritize that. The second thing you want to do is you want to make sure you have an emergency fund. And if you don't have that, I would not be investing in the stock and bond markets yet. You want to have three to six months of take-home pay. You want to have it in a safe FDIC-insured account. I, you know, if you and I were talking three years ago, you'd be like, why? And I'm like, now I'd be like, did you see the pandemic? <laughs> you know, there, you want to have that safety net. And you also, before you start investing outside of a 401k, you want to get invested at work. If they provide you with a 401k or, or your own IRA, you want to be putting money in there, certainly if there's a match, because that's what you call free, free money. money. I mean- <laughs> You know, you have a 20% match, you get, you know, the stock market isn't returning 20% in a year over any period of time. So you want to get there. And then, of course, the tax benefit to it, where, you know, you do get that benefit as well. It's not sexy. It's not fun. You know, it's not something you can brag about at a cocktail party. 
but certainly I'd be doing at least those three things. Then you still may not have enough money. You still may have moved to the big city and you've got an apartment where the rent has just eaten you alive. Or maybe you open an account at Elevest where we have no investing minimum and you put in 10 bucks out of every paycheck. And you just start to think of yourself as an investor. And, you know, over time, maybe it's 1% of your take-home pay. And then, you know, you work your way up to 2%. You get a raise and, you know, you you bump it up a little bit. You just sort of find your way in there. It's not all or nothing. Yeah. It's beginning. And then, by the way, if you're you're starting to, you can see, oh, look, the market went down and I, I did freak out and have a fit and, you know, couldn't sleep. Oh, that's some new knowledge I have about myself. <laughs> or, hey, that wasn't so bad. It was okay. I think that's important because aside from getting your emergency fund and credit card debt done, once you have that done, I think even just $10, putting it in is so valuable because it's actually not the fact that $10 is this great amount of money, but it's that you've overcome the fear of investing. Exactly. The moment you put $10 into an ETF or whatever it is, you've now, you're now an yeah. investor. We tend to make this thing so big in our head, right? Oh, I got to I got to learn about what a bond is and I got to figure out what interest rate. I got to, you know, research and eat. First, I got to figure out what an ETF is and then I got to research it. And should I do impact or should I not do impact? And, well, my dad's broker friend told me I'd have to give up return if I did impact. That feels very 1993, but maybe it's right. Maybe I should, you know, and as women, we have been socialized to get A's. You know, we do our research. And so we make it this thing. Don't make it a thing. Right. Either find an LFS you can trust, a fiduciary, diverse investment portfolio you're comfortable with, or find someone else and just do it on a small scale. But just that getting started is so important. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Yeah. And even myself, I get this analysis paralysis where I remember before creating my first YouTube video, I spent three months studying YouTube. And now looking back, it's like, oh, I should have just posted a video. That's how you learn. Right. right. But investing is the same. Like <laughs> you yeah. don't need to learn the entire handbook in order to put your first $10 yeah, in. That's exactly right. 
The next thing I get, the big obstacle, is people saying they're in their late 20s or 30s or 40s. It's too late for me. Oh, my gosh, I thought you were gonna say it's too early. I've heard that. <laughs> I've heard my, I remember my ex-husband telling my brother when he was in 20s, ah, don't worry about it. You know, you'll be making so much more money later, you can worry about it later, which completely, again, misses the concept of compounding and becoming an investor. All right, so now we're going, I mean, if someone's in their 20s and saying it's too late, oh, please, you know, even, <laughs> please. Even, even, even when you get to grandma's age over here, and I'm not actually literally a grandmother, but even then, you know, just stand, you know, as Susie Orman used to say, stand in your truth and begin to invest in an appropriate portfolio. If you're 78 and you're just starting, you're definitely going to want to be in a less risky portfolio, um, more bonds, less equity, but just start from where you are. And again, it doesn't have to be this one big bet. It can be over a period of time and fine. Yeah. You know, you're not going to earn as much as if you started when you were 22, you know, but there are lots of regrets in life. My ex-husband, there's a regret right there, right? <laughs> yeah, I have a couple of jobs I took. I'm like, what, what was I doing? I mean, plenty, like haircuts. The perm I had, for goodness sake, is a huge regret left in the 80s, obviously, when I was younger. But their life is full of regrets. Just get over it and move on. Yeah. Why are you so passionate about helping people, especially women, invest? Oh, my gosh. How long do you have? <laughs> I am so passionate about it on a macro and a micro basis. So let's start with the individual basis. Money is women's number one source of stress, it, and particularly coming through this pandemic. You know, it is such a source of stress that more than half of millennial women report they have become physically ill over it. And about two-thirds that they have had, you know, sort of it's impacted them emotionally. This is a huge deal. When they take action, and the action can be getting the emergency fund set up, getting the credit card debt investing, it is the driver of their confidence in their future. So it turns a source of stress into a source of strength. And when I looked at this and I said, well, where can I, having worked all those years on Wall Street, be helpful? I, there's not a ton I can do about the gender pay gap. You can try, right? And we put out a lot of content for individuals on it. But I looked and I said, whoa, women aren't investing as much as men are. Even absent that gender pay gap, they're leaving a larger percent of their money in cash it's costing women, some women tens of thousands, some women hundreds of thousands, some women a million plus over the course of their lives. And while we in the industry have sort of blamed women, well, they need to do more financial education of themselves. They're risk averse. You know, we'll put in a marketing newsletter that will say, hey, go girl, and talk about stocks. And I said, you know, maybe... Maybe it's not their fault. Maybe in an industry where 98% of mutual fund dollars are managed by men, even though women are better, as good or better money managers, according to the research, maybe they centered on men. So maybe I can do something about that. So that's the micro level, right? And, and where the passion comes from. In a macro level, I can't think of anything bad that happens when women have more money. And if you look at the gender, we talked, I just touched on the gender pay gap, 82 cents to a man's dollar. The gender wealth gap, how much money we have, 30, 32 cents to a white man's dollar. And for black women, a penny. 
going backwards. And so this is, this is like a crisis. And again, you know, where can we provide the help on a macro basis is by founding an LVEST that is going directly at this issue. You speak a lot about the gender pay gap and the wealth gap and then also the investing gap. If you could only target one to yeah. fix, what would you fix? The wealth gap, for sure. How much money you've got. You know, the investing, investing is a means to an end, which is let me invest so that I can have more money you know, and therefore, you know, everything cascades from that. If I've got money in the bank, you tell me, Erica, do you, if you were working at a big multinational company, you feel better about going to your boss, even asking for a raise. Yeah. If you know I've got enough money that if he says a raise, I'm so angry that you just asked me for a raise, I'm going to fire you. Not that that Which happens. does not happen. Doesn't quite happen. <laughs> Although women, you know, can face some backlash for yeah. advocating for themselves. So you, you've got more degrees of freedom in every way, right? It's at the job, it's in a personal relationship. You know, today when we get divorced, if we're divorcing a man, his standard of living goes up and ours goes down by a double digit percent. And so more money, it doesn't buy happiness, but it buys a lot. It buys a lot. Why do you think that wealth gap exists? Well, inher inherent structural sexism, for one thing. You know, structural racism, um, for women of color. And, you know, what can then be drivers of it is we earn less because of that. We take more career breaks, either through choice or not through choice, as we've seen during the pandemic. And then we've also got a load of stuff in our head about money that has been put there by external forces. And what do I mean by that? Today, 74, 75% of articles written to men about money are positive, And they're about abundance and growth and trading in order to make money and, you know, getting to the corner office. For women, 90% plus of articles about money are negative and they're about scarcity. And they essentially, some 70% shame us as being overspenders. It drives me off the edge. Pay no attention to the structural issues that are keep making you, ha you know, have less money, you're buying the latte. You're having the facial. You're having the pedicure. You're not very good with money. So financial planning doesn't have to be really, really hard as an actual headline, right? And so we get this garbage that goes into our head. And then let's add to that, that we have been driven since childhood to be perfect. Get the A in class. Don't mess up your dress, et cetera. Okay, so I'm told I'm not good at it. I'm told I need to be perfect huge barrier there. And that, you know, some of the questions we've gone through, why don't women invest? Because I feel like I need to know more. All of that expresses itself in the same way. And so, you know, if we could change the conversation around money for women and have us throw those messages out our ears from our brain, I think we'd make real headway. So I always say that money is two sides of the equation, right? You need to either save more or make more if you want to have a better financial picture. But it's so tough for someone making minimum wage, living paycheck to paycheck. There's only so much they can save. Mm -hmm. They can only, you know, cut their budget yep. so much. How do people go about making more money? Uh, get a better boss. So I think I'm the only person who will tell you this. Sometimes it's just, maybe oftentimes, it's actually literally not your fault that... For all the books, if we go to a Barnes & Noble, 
you know, a few blocks from here and we were to go through the books on women and careers, it's all about what you can do. And it feels so personally empowering, particularly, by the way, if they give me a checklist, because I love a checklist. And then I do this and I prep for my review that and I talk to my boss this way and I do this other thing and Bob's your uncle, you know, I should get a raise. And if I don't, then it's my fault because I read the book or maybe I need another book and I'm going to go back and do it again. What nobody tells you is there is, there are inherent biases and that we see them from the time women enter the workforce. They get much worse when we have babies when the men in our lives get daddy bonuses and the women in our lives get mommy taxes and then the pay gap really starts to open up as well. And you look, it's not because women aren't doing the quality work. It's not that we're turning in all of our projects late. We're juggling all kinds of things, but you get this inherent bias that all genders have that the person who's going up the ladder should look something like me, the person in charge. And, you know, what I say to particularly young women, and everybody can't do this and everybody doesn't have the degrees of freedom, but if you do, before you take a job, look up. And if you don't see yourself in that corner office or the vice president level or the whatever level, it is, you know, we're in the 2020s, right? You know, come on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like, oh, I, I didn't see the fact. If you haven't seen it yet, you're willfully looking away. And if you don't see yourself reflected, if you have the chance, the opportunity, you might want to go work someplace else. And you might want to look around and say, huh, you know, my boss, we always call him Todd. What? I mean, he seems like such a lovely person. They, they do. He goes to the women's diversity cocktail party and he talks about how his mom is his role model and his hero and he's got a daughter and he does all the right things. He says all that. He went to unconscious bias training like two weeks ago. But you know... When push comes to shove, he only promotes people who look like himself. Huh. He's a nice guy, but he doesn't even know what, he, what his biases are. It's, they're not examined. And in fact, you know, one large Wall Street firm, I can tell you, a new CEO came in and said that he had this view, why aren't there more women at the top? And he said, ah, I know why. It's because they leave. Everybody knows that. They leave because they have babies. They leave because they can't hack it. They leave because too much travel. Everybody knows it. He went through the data. The women stay. They just don't get promoted. Oh. And so what can we do? And again, understanding if you're at minimum wage and you're sort of trying to string it together, it's a different set of circumstances. But if you have the ability and if you have the privilege to make these choices you know, look up and look at what the track record is, not what people say. But it's tough because I, I agree on that front. But I remember when I was at the law firm, I was in corporate law, so very white, male, heavy at the top. And when I was thinking about leaving because I wasn't happy, one of the reasons I wanted to stay is because I wanted to one day become at the top sure. level and become the role model that I could then, sure. you know, put my hand down and help yep. people climb up the ladder with me. Sure. And so that was one of the reasons I didn't want to leave because I, I, I don't think it's fair to say always look at the top and see if there's people that look like you because how are people that look like you ever going to get to the top unless you, someone you climbs the You may be right? able to do it. You may be able to do it. What I don't want, you know, at an individual level for women is for you to spend your life trying to make it to the top and then like, I could have told you you weren't going to make it. There's <laughs> nobody there in 2022 or 2023. 
Hello? You know, of yeah. course you're going to make it. Here's another option. If you have that privilege, start your own. So that's what I did at Elevest. That's what I did. <laughs> right? It's, you know what? I've got the privilege. I have the access to capital, though that's a whole story for sure. Let's take the knowledge we have and build something really special and really important. And so today we're 75, 80% women. Our leadership team is 85% women. We're 50% plus people of color. This includes, by the way, on our engineering team and our product teams as well. And so we're building a really different, you know, company really centered on women. So there are no great answers. Yeah, I agree. If you think you can make it to the top and you want to change it from the top, go for it. It involves getting to the top, <laughs> right? And so that can involve a lot of sacrifice because you're going to be the first. So you've got to be that much better. We already know that the bar is higher for women and people of color. The research is there. That's not my opinion. So if you think I'm the one, go. If you think, yeah, I, I'm, I may be the one, but I might, maybe not. I'm going to look to the top. And if you really can go for it, then start your own thing. We've talked about these two issues. One is financial literacy. Mm -hmm. What's out there? Is it written for me? Mm -hmm. And then the other is investing. How do I start? Where can I start? When do I start? Yep. What do you think is the bigger issue? Well, they're, they're both important issues. What, what I will tell you is the belief that women have less financial literacy, need more financial education vis-a-vis -vis men, throw it out the window. It's not that they understand what a basis point is and we don't. The financial knowledge is, is relatively close. Financial confidence, there's a big difference. And in fact, what the research would tell you is men are overconfident versus their skills and their knowledge, and women are underconfident in comparison to their skills and their knowledge. And so we actually have this, I don't love the word confidence gap, but confidence gap, and as we talked about before, it's because we're receiving all these messages. You know, on the other hand, is it that we don't know enough, or on the other hand, is it that we're not doing enough? And I vote for get started in whatever way you feel comfortable, but get, get started, you know, is sort of the answer. Now, what we really want to have change is we want financial education in our middle schools, our high schools, and our colleges. We should not let anybody graduate without having some set of basic skills. And it's beginning to change, but I can tell you with my kids, woodworking. They took woodworking in Manhattan, in the modern era. I'm not talking about when there were horse whips and buggies and all that stuff, but didn't get any personal financial education. And so I think it's a real miss on the part of our education system that we, we don't graduate with real knowledge about all of this. And, and we're left to do this basic, you know, survival skill of the modern world on our own. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent. And there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. 
you'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. How then can parents supplement that gap? Yeah. So there's, you know, I'm not a big proponent of in my children, you know, we talked about what was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal at the dinner table. Fine, if, if that's sort of your, your thing. It is what they see. And so what they see today in most households is that mom and dad, if, that, if it's a mom and dad in a relationship, split the money chores and dad is the CFO and he makes the big dollar decisions and the, he drives investing in the majority, vast majority of households. And mom is the treasurer. Mom makes the budgeting decisions. You know, mom makes the donation decisions, but he makes the big strategic stuff and she makes the day-to-day tactical things. Let them see you do both. You know, let your daughter see you looking at your brokerage statement and your investing account. Let Talk to your kids about, I'm going in to ask for that raise tomorrow and you're damn right, I'm going to get it, you know, because I've got my list of my accounts. So let the conversation around money um, be one that's normal and natural. Also recognize in households today that we actually have a gender allowance gap and that, believe it or not, we pay boys more for the same chores as little girls. So get rid of that um, as well and, and just model that behavior that you want to see. By the way, for couples, um, the more you talk about money, the happier you are. It is notable. Um, and it doesn't have to always be the big, my husband freaks out when I want to talk about money because he always translates into it, I, I think he's going to die. They somehow it brings like, are you trying to get? <laughs> Actually, by the way, I had a little surgery on my eye not, not so long ago. And my husband was driving me. We were driving to the city for it. And as we, we were driving and he's like, in case the worst happens, you know, where are your documents? And I'm like, oh my gosh, if the worst happens, they'll call you and you can, you know, pick me up and take me home. And he's like, I was like, oh, did you mean if I died? <laughs> death was on the table for a little eye surgery, but okay. but for him, death and money are somehow inextricably linked. And so I got to lighten it up at home, you know, and yeah. talk about money in terms of <laughs> the vacation we want to take, the budget, how we overspent, et cetera. Because if I make it too big a deal, he goes straight to death. But that honestly, though, that is important yeah. to talk about and know like where your partner's accounts are, mm-hmm. how to get access Why? to them. Hundred. We're into crypto, and if my husband, yeah, you know, the worst were to happen, went somewhere, yeah. <laughs> like I wouldn't know how to get access. I know. And those are things you need to figure out, and those are emotional conversations um, as well. And so, what I find works in my relationship is if I ask my husband, "Hey, honey." Where is all your money and how much is it? And can I have the passwords? He, he tends to freak out. If I lead with, let me share mine with you, you know, then it's sort of weird. He can't not share his with me. Yeah. Um, and so I find I have to give and then he'll, he'll give back. But diving right into it, he freaks. And especially being in law, like you see the mm. number one cause of divorce is money, money issues, right? And then what often happens when people get divorced? Who's often— Oh, 
Okay, well, so let's back up. You know, <laughs> so the other advice, if if everybody takes away one piece of advice, in relationships, we've got to be involved in the money. We cannot outsource it to our partner. When we do, and it comes back to us, and remember, women live longer than men. 80% of women die single. 90% of us manage our money on our own, even if we don't want to, right? Um, when that money comes back to us, 74% of us have a negative surprise. 74%, not 15, not 20, 74%. Something like 98% of widows and uh, divorcees, women say the number one piece of advice I give to other women is stay involved in the money. And I know, I know, I know. But my husband or my partner is so amazing and so fantastic. And yeah, but I now see, I now have friends whose, whose partners have passed away unexpectedly. And so it's not that they were a bad person, it's they died. And I also, you know, have friends whose partners have left them for a young cutie. And, you know, when those things end, you, you got to know where you stand. The other thing I'll say is the flip side, what does worry me, certainly for my son, is the flip side of women being insecure around, oh gosh, I don't know enough, oh, you know, is the same society that does that number on us does the opposite number on him. You need to be good at the money, right? This is part of your manly man, man, man duties is to take care of the money, to support the family. And so that 74% of men on the other side of the woman like, ah, I didn't know what we have is a man who's like, oh, you know, all my friends seem to be making all this money in meme stocks or Bitcoin or trading. And, and I have to act like that too, you know, and I feel emasculated if I'm not doing well with money either. So I'm going to hide that. And so it's a burden that he carries that she, you know, it's two different burdens, frankly. He's carrying that burden and she's carrying the, uh. Yeah. And of course, people in this space, they only talk about the wins. You're not, you're hearing about, oh, I made, I outperformed the market. You don't hear about the 90%, 99% of people of who of don't course. outperform the market, of right? Course. Of so course. So there's that instant pressure. Mm -hmm. As with everything, right? It's like going on Instagram. You don't see the pictures of someone looking half bedraggled and a little depressed. You see the good stuff. So it is at cocktail parties when we talk about money. You, you only hear the good stuff. One of my most controversial videos I've made in terms of how people were upset in the comments was just a video about how in marriages, I think that we should keep separate bank accounts. Maybe you have a joint bank account, but you should keep separate bank accounts. And people were so troubled by that on both ends. You know, why, why have separate if you're going to be married for life? You know, yeah, yeah. are you saying you're going to get divorced? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with what I'm sure you get a lot of negative feedback because you speak very candidly about how your focus is on women investing. Yeah, yeah. How do you deal with the negative feedback that you get from, I presume, men saying, okay, why do you only care about women? I don't care. You know, that, <laughs> fine. Well, you know, everybody cares. You know, in a patriarchal society, if you're, you know, you think you're talking to everyone, you're probably talking to men. And for the industry... When you look at how it was structured, it was built by men. So therefore, our hypothesis is it's built for men. And in fact, when you peel things apart, our investing algorithm at Elevest is the only investing algorithm that takes into account gender. Now, money, money is gender neutral. Sure, in theory, but if you're a woman and you earn less and you take more career breaks and you die later, if you're not taking into account what her gender is, 
then she risks running out of money or more likely just having a worse retirement, not having the degrees of freedom that she thought she was setting herself up to have. So just like with crash dummies and with research in medicine, if you're not taking gender into account, you know, you're, you can be harming women and, and pretty substantially. And so we also recognize they're just issues that are different for women, you know, and we, we talk about the gamut of money, asking for a raise as a woman and, you know, as a woman of color is very different than if you're a white guy doing it. It just Mm -hmm. is. It just is. There's so much research. And so one size fits all advice isn't working for her. So we thought, yeah, you know, and if people get upset about it, there are literally hundreds of investing firms with majority male clients, maybe thousands. Like, you know, the fact that we're over here as women with our little one, you know. So, and by the way, men can come over too. We just kill them sooner and have them earn more and have them take, few, you know, more fewer career breaks. So it, it all works out. But on the separate accounts, um, the, the, the part I'll weigh in is keep your, keep your investments and certainly your retirement separate, right? Please, you know, they, it's called an individual retirement account for a reason, You know, we all come in on our own and we all leave on our own. And so at least making sure that that wealth building part of it, that you're involved in it, you know, is really important. What are the biggest money mistakes you've made personally? (sighs) Oh, God. You know, how how much time do we have? Um, I, when I was at City, as a senior executive there, um, we had a blood oath that we would not sell the company stock. It was a handshake. It was an agreement. And I didn't diversify and kept my money, too much of it, not all of it, but too much of it in city stock, which was great when it was at 54. And it was really horrible when it was less than one. And you see, you see this again in the recent tech run-up and then crash. Oh, but my company is just, they've given me this stock. It keeps going up. If I sell it, I'm going to have to pay taxes on it. You know, it just, the upside just seems so much more clear than the power of diversification. Um, So we saw that again and again. The second mistake I made is when I was brought over to Bank of America to run Merrill. I'm a word is your bond kind of gal and Wall Street operated that way for so many years. And so when I came over, I wasn't given a contract and I had the word of the CEO and, you know, it's the word of the CEO. It's like, ah, you know, I took notes and then he friggin' retired on me and nobody honored the verbal agreement from then on out. I know I use like yours lawyer. You're like, you're kidding me, Sally. You're kidding me. But you know, I wanted the job. I wanted to run this huge thing. And so, you know, word is my bond. So I have made several expensive mistakes. What about the best money moves you've made? The best money move I made was um, I sold some of the city stock and I bought a home. And, you know, my, it just it gives me such joy. We can talk about real estate as an investment and, you know, tends to be a less attractive investment historically than stocks, you know, stocks have been, um, not so much for bonds, but the protecting some of my wealth, some of the money I had by buying a home and then being in it, you know, and I love everything about it, um, is by far the best investment I've made. Did you grow up in a household where 
you spoke a lot around money. Yeah, screamed. Yeah, it was screaming. It's the only thing my parents fought about. Um, in a traditional, you know, type of, you know, 1950s, 60s type of relationship. My dad worked outside the home, works outside the home. My mom worked inside the home. He didn't quite give her an allowance, but, you know, she would always overspend the budget, always. And once a month when my dad would sit down to pay bills, they would get in a fight and he would slam the door and walk out and leave. And we kids would hide under the bed. Is he coming back? And so that's why I pretty unapologetically, even though I grew up in South Carolina, you know, where women wanting money is not, doesn't fall into the historic South Carolina gender norms. I was like, I'm going to Wall Street and I'm, I want to make money and I want to be, if not, you know, sure, financially independent, but just financially stable where, you know, I can't, in fact, it's funny. I, um, my husband, my now husband really triggered me. I took a career break when we were early in our marriage and, and into my pregnancy with our son. He's the nicest guy. And I, you know, I remember one day I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to go, we had a cocktail party and I'm in maternity clothes. And I think I'm going to go buy another maternity dress, maternity cocktail dress for this cocktail party. And he said, in a mild-mannered way, but don't you already have one? <laughs> to which, Erica, I exploded, exploded. <laughs> and I was like, if I'm going to buy an effing maternity cocktail dress, I'm going to buy it. And at that point, I remember, I remember standing in the bedroom. At that point, I'm like, I'm working every day for the rest of my life because I'm not running cocktail dresses by anybody. Yeah, that would be frustrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, ah, you're limiting my freedom. I was like, no, I just thought it was pretty and just you're pregnant and you're not going to, you're only going to wear it once. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> going back to the childhood thing though, I've, I find it interesting that a lot of us from our childhood experiences, myself included, we're actually really good at 18 at only one aspect of the equation, which is the budgeting and being frugal. Yeah. Like when I was, I'm very good at being broke mm. as a student for so many years. Like I know how to rip the tissues in half so those tissues <laughs> last longer, right? But the other side of the equation, it's just, it's very hard to teach how to make more money and how to invest and all of these things, which is why it's great that the internet has come and there's so many resources that are free on LFS and YouTube and TikTok. What can we do to be better about that other side of the equation? Come over to LMS. That That's in part <laughs> why we're here, is to try to take down those barriers. And okay, fine. You and I have talked about getting ready to invest. If you're not, you're not. But come just be, be there. You know, look at the articles in the magazine. We have a ton of content. Follow us on Instagram. Follow me on LinkedIn. You know, these are discussions and conversations we're having. I don't love all the Finfluencers who are out there. You know, but if that's your thing, you know, find a few that you like and, and follow them and start to pick up sort of nuggets and tidbits and watch the crypto market, watch the stock market. Just always be aware of people without much experience hyping things, you know, to go to the sky. I mean, I felt like such a friggin' grandma, grandma with the meme stocks and the every type of crypto is going to the moon. And, you know, you're just like, I just really want to say like, no, you know, and, and I felt like grandma over here, 
you know, back if you had perfectly foreseen the advent of the car, you would, could have foreseen that it would take over the world. Think crypto, right? It's going to take over the world. But you could still have been wiped out investing in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of car companies that went broke. Same with the internet bubble of 2000, 2001. They were right. In fact, the power of the internet is so much more than was expected then, but the stocks got ahead of themselves and a ton of them went broke. And so you could have gotten the whole theme right and, pay, and gone broke. And so, you know, don't, you know, where you have to sort of watch yourself is when you go from I'm nervous to I'm giddy. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would put forth, Erica, we need to take all emotion out of investing. Because if you're scared, that's usually a good time. Everybody else is usually scared too. And that's usually a perfect time to invest. If you feel giddy, again, you're not alone. It means the market is overcorrected. So we want, you know, let's make investing boring again. Is Maybe I'll think about that as a hashtag. I like that. No, investing should be boring. It should be boring. That is my favorite kind of investing. Just invest, put it aside. I don't look. I don't know what the day-to-day markets are. It's sort of like food. They say you shouldn't, nothing that you put into your body should cause an emotion. Mm. Right? You know, too much caffeine, you're jumping around, too much of other stuff, you're whatever. But that, you know, just be careful if stuff in your body is changing your mood. Be careful if investing is changing your mood. Yeah. You mentioned the Finfluencers. What's the worst Finfluencer advice you've seen? Well, there's one I got into it with one of them, and this is, this is a handful of years ago, who was saying that people needed to build up their savings before um, they were paying off their credit card debt. And I'm like, uh, if emotionally that's important to you, like, uh, you know, uh, I got to see something in the bank account, otherwise I go over the edge fine. But financially, that's a huge mistake. And so financially, you should take all whatever the savings you have, pay off the credit card debt, even if that means you're zeroed out, right? You know, because the credit card debt costs you so much and the savings account is not earning you anything. And so you're just transferring value. And they came back and they said, yeah, but what if I have an emergency and I need money? I'm like, oh, then you run up your credit card well, what if the bank cancels it? And I'm like, first of all, I was CFO of Citigroup. (laughs) So I feel like, I mean, I don't mean to be a jerk, but I feel like I got an edge on you on this one. (laughs) And that's what banks live for is when you need that money and then you pay them late fees and all. Like, that's like their thing, okay? But, you know, let's assume, so the risk you're trying to, you know, take care of is that they canceled at at that time. And I'm like, that is the world's most expensive insurance policy. Just be clear about what that is. And so we sort of had this back and forth, um, which I thought was just financially, just numerically incorrect advice. There's always going to be, in these cases, a financially optimal decision. Mm -hmm. And then there's the psychologically optimal decision. 100%. So for example, I had $200,000 of student debt when I graduated from law school. It was not by the time I refinanced it, it was around a 3% interest rate. Yep. Financially, it would have been optimal for me to actually invest that money. However, psychologically, I, I, I just wanted to get out of debt. So I went the psychological route. How do you deal with that? That's okay. Just be clear with yourself about what it is. You know, and if you do have a you know, pencil and a calculator, maybe just calculate how much you might be losing. 
from it. Okay, so Sally and I were together and she said the stock market went up 9.5% a year. I wouldn't invest all in stocks. It'd be a diversified bond stock. 6%, right? Okay, 6% a year versus this is costing me 3%. Let me see how much money that costs me over time. I got to pay taxes on the gate. Okay, you know, my peace of mind is worth 10,000 bucks or 500 bucks. Huh, nope, it's more than that. You know what? I'm just going to remind myself of that and I'm making the financially optimal decision. But just be clear about why you're making it, you know, as opposed to operating from a place of scarcity and nervousness. A lot of my content is around me versus the companies and yes. how, to, yes. how to understand the rules of the system to kind of win over the companies. Mm-hmm. Being in the finance industry for so long, do you have any hacks or ways that we can understand the system too. (laughs) You know, so I think one important thing to keep in mind when you're investing um, is you are paying a fee. If you don't think you're paying a fee, you're paying a fee. You may be paying a fee in a way that you don't understand, but that money gets taken out of you. So companies that, oh, we trade for free are selling those trades to other companies. And so you are presumably, if it's being sold to one company, they're bringing that value. Are you getting the price on a trade you otherwise would have gotten? So it's an invisible fee, right? Would I be better off? It can be a fee in which you're charged basis points on assets. Um, We've had numerous people tell us, oh, I'm in my company. I'm not being charged a fee. Yeah, it's being taken out of the account. At Elevest, we have a subscription fee. So we're pretty visible. We're visible on it. But for everything, I'd look and ask the question of, where's that fee? How much is it? You know, how do I get to the bottom of it? Um, And tend to be of the view that a visible fee out there clear, you know, is what everybody says they want. But then it's hard, you know, if it's invisible to know what you would have otherwise had, but you're always getting charged a fee. That's so smart. And that's a really good thing to look at for people who are investing in ETFs or mutual funds. Look at the expense ratio. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how much you're paying for every $100 you've invested, right? Yep, for sure. I want to shift gears a little because you, for Elevest, just raised $53 million. Congratulations on that. But I want to know what the process of fundraising has been like for you and any difficulties that you've run into. Oh, it's horrible. It's (laughs) I'd say for women, for people of color, it is pretty horrible. And you see it in the numbers, though we don't really tend to grasp what the numbers mean. So if women are raising 4 5 6% of venture dollars, in the fintech business, women are raising 1% or 2% of those dollars. In we just raised our Series B, so a little bit later stage, women are raising 1% or 2% of those, which means if you do the math, for an Alavest fintech, financial services, later stage, it's about a one in 10,000 chance of getting the fundraising done. And it's companies that aren't founded, you know, that would have a woman's perspective. You might say, gee, is that important? It's hugely important. Today, the financial services industry does a much better job of serving men, certainly on the investing side, than women. Would more women coming in, founding companies, help solve that, you bet your bottom dollar that, that it would. And it's also the enormous amount of time wasted. If women are raising 2% of a pool of money, but sort of by definition means it just takes them 50 times longer 
right? And so it's not just, hey, the companies that aren't getting funded. The ones that are getting funded is just so much harder, so much more time consuming when the, the tables are stacked, you know, the bills are stacked against you to start with. So I think, you know, start throwing out names of other women CEOs who've raised this much in the financial services, the fintech industry. You can't yeah. because these numbers, this, this tilt towards male founders is, is really hurting us. What unique challenges have you faced now as a startup founder versus being executive level <laughs> at all these corporate America companies? It's so much harder. <laughs> I mean, it's like everything's hard about being a startup founder. Everything. And it's hard at the beginning and it's hard now. Like everything, right? At the beginning, you are every day one or two mistakes away from being out of business. You hire the wrong CTO. You hire the wrong CPO to head a product. You know, that could be a fatal error. You hire the wrong one. Maybe you can save it, but you want to be nice and you want to coach him and you want to, uh, nah, 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 nah. you know, you, as you know, I did at the beginning, have the wrong concept of how to solve the problem. You got the right concept, but you're not executing well. Um, you were too focused on product. You're not paying attention to marketing. And so you launched this great product, but nobody, you've got your two followers on Twitter who are like, yay, it's your mom and your dad. are both <laughs> like, yay, you launched this thing. And then you move on and you sort of think later, and then the fundraising's hard. But, you, and by the way, you need to, you can't raise the money without the team, but you can't get the team without the money. And so it's this massive juggling act. And then you get to being a growth stage like we are. And you have single points of failure, you know, amongst your, your team. Someone goes on vacation and X doesn't get done. And, you know, it doesn't matter to a big company because there are 27 other people. Um, and, you know, then you scale through people. That's the heartbreaking part. You go from early stage, certain skill set to grow stage, different skill set. And through no fault of anybody, you're bidding people goodbye. It's just, it's, you know, I always say, unless you have to, you have to start this company, that you just see the problem and you are the one to solve it. If that happens, go for it. Otherwise, it's too much of a pain in the ass. For the 53 million that you raised, where is that money going? Running the company. Um, you know, I know I'm supposed to say something sexy, like we're launching this new business, but as a startup, we're not yet profitable. And so there is some part of this that is turning the lights on and doing the things we need to do to bring in the new clients and customers and grow the relationships with existing ones to get us to, you know, profitability. So turning, I know that's not sexy. It's okay. I know, <laughs> I know. The, the, all the PR folks are like, but you have to say it's to do X or Y. I'm like, but it's not. <laughs> But one thing that I, that I would love to sort of share yeah. is how we did the raise. So we have some of the traditional venture capitalists who have funded us. We have more women who typically don't invest in startup and growth companies who stepped up to invest in Elevest. And we sort of found our way as we were knocking on the venture doors and getting a lot of the, but don't their husbands manage the money for the women and what's going to happen if they get married and all those questions, which to me are just, I know you're well-meaning, but you're never going to invest in Elevest. If we're at the, do women need their own thing? You know, you're, you're never going to get it through your investment committee. You're just not. Um, and so we were 
knocking around here. And then people were saying, well, you should do crowdfunding. You're like, yeah, but we need to raise some real money. And we sort of found a middle way, which were successful women, financially successful women, sort of stepping up and saying, I, I want to I be part of this. And I want to form the modern version of the investing club. And we want to invest in Elevest. And so we brought in like 350 plus investors from underrepresented groups, which I don't think, I think it's unheard of at our stage. One of the things I really admire about you is how a lot of people who have found the level of success that you have in life will only talk about the successes and the highlight reels, but you've been very open about sharing the not so highlights as or you've been, <laughs> you've been very open about sharing the other side too. And I think you famously said that you're the only person to be fired on the cover. The only woman to be fired on the front page of the Wall Street Journal twice. I, there are probably some dudes who've, who've managed that, <laughs> but the only woman, because typically we don't let women fail more than once. Um, and I remember a good friend of mine um, after the second time, taking me to breakfast and essentially like, when are you going back to South Carolina? And I'm like, what? You know, like, have I been run out of the city? (laughs) Is it that bad? But the reason I talk about it is success and failure, this different sides of the same coin, particularly as a woman in business, I was never going to get to the top unless I stood outside of the crowd. And the early, you know, as a research analyst, having a very different perspective from everyone else was a way of standing out. And then when I was right, you couldn't forget me. When I ran my first business, which was a research business, having a very different strategy, we were going to be the most, the independent research firm. We weren't going to do investment banking. We were going to have sell ratings on stocks when nobody else would. Um, and so we'd stand out. And, and we were unsuccessful and then we were very successful. So I found, you know, if I'd stayed in the pack, I never would have gotten to the top. I had to step outside the pack in a pretty notable way. Well, when you do that, you're not going to bat a thousand or whatever the baseball thing is. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be right every time. You're not going to, every move isn't going to be the right move. And so, you know, it was interesting when I was at, at City, the first two bosses just liked me, you know, and, and I, you know, go, 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 go. And let's have differentiated strategies. And then we got a new CEO and you could just feel, he just didn't much, you know, wouldn't really look me in the eye in leadership team meetings. He never called on me, you know, go around the room for all the 12, 13 people there. He would ask their opinion except for mine. And then I'm like, oh, 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 wait, I have an opinion too. I'd like to share my opinion too. And so when we had a business clash about how to treat clients who'd lost money on products we'd missold to them, and I wanted to partially reimburse him, he, he was in the opposite way. And there was no relationship there. And so, you know, he, uh, we got him partially reimbursed. It went to the board, but I got kicked out, you know, kicked out of the place. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. What is different about me is I didn't say, ah, you know, that's it. I said, okay, this is one of the best days of my life. I don't know it yet. You know, on to the next thing. And, and success isn't going to look the same again, but it can be different and it can be, there are opportunities to be successful. They come by me every day. Sometimes I'm just not looking. And so let me see what the next stage is going to be. What's something 
with LFS that you initially were like, oh, this is a failure, but actually looking back, it was actually a blessing in disguise. Well, let me, let me hit it this way. Um, LFS itself, it took me a long time to come to the conclusion that I needed to launch LFS. And after I left running Merrill, I had any number of people say to me, Sally, for your next chapter, why don't you found an investing firm for women? And I had a couple of reactions, all of which were driven by the societal messages I received. The first of which I'm going to be honest with you is like, well, that's junior varsity for women. Why did I think that? Because we tend to businesses for women, we pink it, we shrink it, we charge more, we dumb it down. There had been initiatives for women in the industry and they were all newsletters that were marketing at her as opposed to taking her needs truly seriously. So that was one. And the other is, well, that won't be a very big business because women don't like to manage their money. I know that because I was at a firm where we had mostly men clients and therefore I've now proven, you know, rather than saying, gosh, maybe the product wasn't right. Maybe the offering wasn't right. Maybe we didn't, I don't want to say respect her. Of course we respected her, but maybe we didn't deeply, deeply incorporate what she was saying and change the underlying product and go from marketing to her or at her to serving her. And so I spent time with these patriarchal ideas until one day I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to, I need to found an investing fintech firm for women. <laughs> People are like, so we've been telling you for the past couple of years, <laughs> but my sort of traditional view was getting in the way of seeing the need, the opportunity, and really the market dislocation, the market, you know, anomaly that was there. Where do you see Elvis going now for the next five to 10 years? What are your goals? What do you hope to achieve? Well, the overarching goal of Elvis is to get more money in the hands of women. And so we always come back to that mission. And as we talked about before, nothing bad happens. Only good things happen at the individual level and the macro level when women have more money. And so that's first and foremost. And, and Eric, I have to tell you, I've had, you know, when I carry my Elevest bag, I'll have women stop me on the street to thank, to say, oh, do you work at Elevest? Would you thank the team? I never knew I could invest. I never knew it was for me. So that's, that's what really drives us. Of course, financially, you know, do I want to be standing at the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ to ring the bell to go public? you know, reaching sort of multi-billion dollar status, you're damn straight. Um, you're damn straight. And, and I actually honestly sort of feel the weight of it, that if we are not successful, that then you get a look, ah, see, see, women aren't good with money. You know, something for women. I mean, you know, the, the old system is working. Um, they don't, they don't need it. And you know, I feel the responsibility of that for my nieces, for my daughter, you know, that I don't want it to go back to, yeah, well, you know, figure out, figure out which, you know, large cap mutual fund you need, even though it didn't work out, you know, even though it wasn't something you were, you loved doing before. I'm sure people are going to ask me this. So I'll just ask you, what is different about Elevest? Well, thank you for asking. I think let's start with the fact that we are the only financial fintech company of any size that has been built centered on women. And as women who reflect her 
and then through taking her very seriously with these thousands of hours of research. And Erica, that has led to things that are demonstrably different and things that are subtly different. Demonstrably different, the only investing algorithm that takes gender into account. That matters because of the different earning patterns. Do, you know, subtly different, one example. We learned early on that if you ask a man what his risk tolerance is, and he's not quite sure, he will answer the question as he begins to invest and continue on. He takes an educated guess. He's like, close enough, here I go. What we found with women was she'll be like, oh, that seems like an important question. She'll leave. And she says, I'm going to go figure this out and come back. And then maybe she does and maybe she doesn't. And often she doesn't. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. How do we solve that problem? Right? So, and we did, by the way, by giving her, you know, sort of judging for her how much risk she could afford to take rather than asking her how much she wanted to take. And, and then putting together a portfolio around her goals that's risk optimized for her. It's also subtle things like jargon. People think women don't understand jargon. It's not the gender difference. We both, none of us understand jargon, but men power through. They're like, oh, I think I sort of know what this means. And women are like, ah, I got to figure that out. And so I could give you a thousand other examples, but it really was centered on women. And so should feel, and we hope it feels sort of effortless. It looks like an app or a website that you're dealing with in your life, not the welcome to Elevest Financial and our view on the economy and our view on the stock market. It's more like, hey, Erica, welcome. Tell us about yourself, yeah. right? So it's a different, it's a lighter feel. By the way, nothing, you know, nothing, no corners cut in terms of the intellectual horsepower behind it. Our chief investment officer, Dr. Sylvia Kwan has all these advanced degrees in computer science, applied math, et cetera, um, is, is just, in my opinion, just, just a genius. Um, so all the horsepower is there, but it's presented and engaging in sort of an effortless way. And the, the final thing I'll say is we build impact into it. What we really heard from women is, I don't buy the, I can invest for financial returns or societal returns. I want both. And I want you, all of us, to be really clear with me what percent of my portfolio could be in gun manufacturers, for example? How can I invest, you know, through ETFs and companies that advance women? And I don't want to give up return for it. And so we do this, what's also different about us from college to crypt, you know, through a woman's life journey, whether it's her first dollar, which we spent time talking about today, or she's made it and she needs a financial advisor fully dedicated to her. We want to be with her the whole way because, you know, sort of changing the engagement model is, you know, women are telling us they want it from college to crypt. We have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is about Sally Taught Me. What do you want people to walk away from this podcast being able to say, Sally taught me these things about money? Um, Sally taught me it is better to get started than to know everything. Sally taught me that historically investing is the highest return thing I could do with that extra 15 minutes at the end of the day. You know, Sally taught me that the messages that I as a woman am receiving, and as a man, any gender, am receiving about money are sort of warping my, my point of view. Sally taught me that being a woman who wants more money, who's actively working to be more money, doesn't mean I'm not feminine. Doesn't mean, 
you know, I'm not fitting into those gender norms. Sally taught me that we need to change those gender norms. Sally taught me that when I'm with a partner, I'd better not allow him or her to take control of the money or I may end up regretting it. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, Sally Krawcheck has a book called Own It, The Power of Women at Work, and I'll put the link in the show notes. And I have a huge favor to ask. It would mean a lot if you could take a moment to leave a review for the podcast. Even just one sentence is perfect. It really helps support the work that we're doing. Thank you for spending your time with me today, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.